0: Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Campion from Bearings, and you are listening to our pilot podcast. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. This is a new initiative for us at Bearings, and we'd love your feedback. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. On today's show, I spoke with Martin Horn on the state of global high-yield markets. Martin is head of Bearings Global High-Yield Investments Group. He's been in the industry for over 20 years and joined the firm back in 2002. Based in London, Martin leads what we believe to be the largest dedicated high-yield investment team in the industry, with 86 investment professionals focused on high-yield and structured credit across the U.S. and Europe. You know, what really struck me about today's conversation was the nuance with which Martin and his global team seem to be navigating today's high-yield environment, which really, by most accounts, has no shortage of risks to consider. And with that, here's Martin Horn. Thanks for joining me today. Absolute pleasure. Great. So let's dive right in. And uh, today, we're talking about high-yield. And uh, let's start really simple. Can you just explain to me, what is high-yield?
1: Yeah, the the definition, I guess, of the global high-yield market, which we invest in, is basically Europe and U.S. as two continents, Um, It's all sub-investment grade credit. That means double B and below. There's consistency of why we select that as our market because these are the two markets where, first of all, insolvency law is pretty well known, so you know where you're going to go if you get into trouble. And secondly, there's real liquidity in these markets. They're huge. There's about 3.5 trillion worth of issuers out there, about 3,000 or more different companies in your opportunity set. So it gives you a great selection of assets, particularly for active managers like ourselves.
0: So would uh, the typical man on the street know any of these companies?
1: Yeah, there's some big brand names in there, the likes of Heinz, the likes of Formula One, the likes of Thomson Reuters. These aren't small companies anymore. Again, this this industry has evolved into a really grown-up industry. So some of the big brands that everyone would be familiar with exist in the high-yield universe. Netflix is a typical example of the new generation of tech-based Um, leaders in their market positions that's coming into the high-yield universe. And that makes the market really exciting because you get a much better profile, much better cross-section between, if you like, old industry and new industry um, as you would typically find in the average stock market.
0: Now, my my impression of high-yield generally is if you look at the last 10 or 15 years and how the market's uh, developed, that the average size of the company is larger today than it maybe was um, back a decade ago. Does that factor into the flexibility that some of these companies have today?
1: A hundred percent it does. And and again, this business has evolved, this industry has evolved into something of an immature industry to a much more mature, robust profile of corporate credit that we see today. The likes of Thomson, um, Reuters, Axan, Formula One, they just didn't exist in the universe um, when we moved back into the noughties. We didn't get multiple several billion dollar issuers out there in the marketplace. So if I were to look at the headlines
0: today, we'd hear things about the end of the credit cycle potentially being upon us. We'd hear things about credit spreads being low by historical standards. But then at the same time, we hear think, we, we see that defaults are, are low by historical standards. So from... As you look at these issuers and you're on the ground kind of kicking the tires on companies, I mean, what kind of behavior What kind of behavior are you seeing from the issuers themselves? And then what kind of behavior are you seeing from investors?
1: Yeah, well, I guess where we are, I mean, you've painted the picture correctly. Investors today are all asking, where are we in the cycle? How mature is it? And when is it going to turn? And they have somewhat spooked by the fact that the American equity markets in particular have run for so long. Um, I think i draw some comparisons between the pre lehmans that I recognized and today's market. And it's very, very, very different landscape. The first is that everyone is asking the question you just asked me, when is the downturn? And if you went back to 2006 and 2007, actually, no one ever asked that. They were in this perpetual growth cycle, according to 95% of the investors out there. Everyone believed in the huge hockey stick earnings that they were presented with when they... They undertook an investment in those days. And you see nothing like that when you're looking at a new issue um, today. You, you, you see forecasts, they show growth, but they show relatively measured growth. Um, capital structures look far more resilient to me when we stress test those numbers. And the vast majority of the index is still uh, a very investable um, universe. I think what you've got to be careful is you don't just index track. Because there is definitely parts of the market that we would avoid. There's definitely issuers that we would suggest people go nowhere near. But that's pretty much always the case. There's always an industry cycle you don't like. There's always issuers you're going to be more cautious about. But being an asset selector during this sort of period, we think that pays out for you. Some of the other types of risks that we
0: hear about are, you know, as the the cycle matures, you hear about, you know, potential weakening of documentation uh, for investors. So um, things like Covenant light transactions.
1: Well, CovLite um, is one of the most overtalked subjects, in my opinion, um, in the market. It first got flagged as the end of our world um, about 10 years ago, and it's been talked about pretty much every year, year on year since that point. Um, so if you isolate just the CovLite issue... Um, As somewhat of a non-issue, there is absolutely no statistical data that says CovLite loans leads to lower recoveries. Recoveries are all about the underlying quality of the business. And frankly, if a retailer gets into trouble, you're going to experience very low recoveries on most occasions. You get a nice fat industrial company getting into trouble. There's more things you can do, more non-core businesses you can sell off, and your recovery levels are generally pretty high. So CoveLite, to me, just an over-talked-about topic. I think what is relevant, though, is weaker documentation. And frankly, I've been here before so many times over the last decades, you get periods of time when the balance of power is in issuers' favors, documentation goes loose, and then things switch around and documentation gets tighter and it goes loose and tighter. And that, again, is the role of an active manager. You've got to navigate your way through periods when documentation is less good, and therefore your credit standards should move up and make sure that you're investing in the right and appropriate balance sheets that are out there.
0: So with with a high-yield instrument, you're looking at, two different types of risk. One is credit risk, the other is interest rate risk. So if we talk about rate risk, um, what, what is your stance right now in terms of rising rates? Do you expect that to impact the companies in your universe much at this stage?
1: Well, I guess there's two points to this. One is um, just thinking about absolute interest costs and the burden of interest costs for the companies that we invest in. Um frankly, as a base standard of credit analysis, if you flex interest rates up a couple of percentage points and that's the difference between it being a viable capital structure or not, you shouldn't be investing in that company in the first place. So your standards of stress testing the businesses that you look at should be far, far greater than that in terms of uh, risk profile the second is the impact of interest rate rises on the bond market and what technical impacts that can have on the bond market and if you take a really big step back you generally only get rate rising environments in relatively good robust economies that's generally um, a central bank's way of taking the heat out of the market of t- dampening down inflationary pressures. And we've done a study of um, the most aggressive interest rate rises in the US market's history, which is quite long dated, stretches all the way back to the 90s. There's only two occasions when the bond market reacted negatively to an aggressive interest rate rise in the following three months um, after that rise. One was um, in in uh, 2000, when the tech bubble was um, bursting, so there was other stuff going on. The other was in May 08, just before Lehman's, um, there was other stuff going on.
0: We're starting to hear some murmurs out there about recession. It seems like economic growth is still healthy, by and large, um, in developed markets you know, we're not hearing many people talk about recession in 2019, but when you look out to 2020 and beyond, it seems like it's, it's, it's more in the picture. What does a recession scenario look like for high yield?
1: I think, first of all, the thing to recognize is we're all having this conversation. And frankly, your crystal ball is as good as my crystal ball in terms of when a recession will happen. I just know it will as sure as night followed day, you know, cycles are cycles for a reason and you get growth and you get recession and you get growth again. Unlike Lehman's, which was basically a cliff edge fall, you know, Lehman's was a huge structural issue in the market, um, underpinned by hopelessly reckless lending standards that meant that everyone stopped buying from everyone else and corporate earnings just fell off a cliff. I don't think that's the reality for what we're likely to see going forward. But again, we'll we'll adjust that. That viewpoint, as we see the markets unfold and we see the landscape develop. Yep, and as we think about maybe what's
0: different this time around, we've got a, a, a trade war um, rhetoric around the world that's that's didn't exist in in some of these prior recession periods. Is that something that's worrying you at this stage?
1: Well, the trade war is part of the landscape today that brings uncertainty, and P- and investors hate uncertainty, but. You've got to remember that in pretty much every risk that you could name to me, there are winners and losers from different profiles that we see. I think the trade war will come to an end at some point, but I'm going to measure my risk profile that I'm prepared to take on in those industries to deal with that uncertainty it doesn't mean that any particular industry you care to mention to me is uninvestable. There are always good businesses, even in bad industries, even in bad cycle points. You just have to do your homework and find where those opportunities exist. So let's talk about the U.S. and and the European
0: uh, high-yield markets. Your team is investing in uh, loans and bonds, both in the U.S. uh, and in Europe. Can we talk a little bit about how these markets are similar and how these markets are different.
1: Yeah, I guess look, if you look at the, the the similarity at the moment is the economy is in pretty good shape. Yeah, we've got spots in Europe. Um, Italy grabs a lot of headlines. But Italy is a very small part of the high yield universe, both in bonds and loans. But generally speaking, you look at continental Europe and they've got not dissimilar conditions in the GDPs is ticking along relatively nicely. They've got near full employment. So from a risk profile, pretty much you're in not, not dissimilar shape. Defaults are very low. They're about 1% in Europe. They're 1% to 2% in the US. And the difference is really about the commodity space, which the US has a, high, a far higher proportion of. So that's the similarity. The difference at the moment is really about how successful the U.S. stock market's been. The stock market has boomed here. Well done to all the U.S. um, investors out there. Your pension funds are doing great. But that means P ratios in the U.S. stock market are relatively high compared to the European stock market where they've been somewhat beaten up. And as a result, more M&A driven by private equity companies um, is being allocated into Europe um, compared to the size of the European market. We're getting a disproportional amount of the new M&A. And in classic supply and demand, what that means is spreads go wide because issuers are fully spent and there's more and more new issue coming down the pipeline. That's great from a credit guy's perspective because it's a technical widening in spread that has nothing to do with risk. It just simply is. And what that's meant is, In the US, they've had a relatively less new issue and people are chasing fewer and fewer assets. So spreads have come in. Um, The technical conditions in the US are stronger. Take a big step back. First half of this year, the US outperformed the European market generically and the loan market outperformed um, its bond equivalent. And as a result, um, we are allocating into the European bond market and the European loan market because we see on a risk-adjusted basis the spread content of that jurisdiction is going to pay us more over the longer term.
0: How does the currency factor into all that and is it an interesting time to invest for uh, U.S. investors potentially in European high yield?
1: Yeah, the currency angle is a really interesting one, particularly for U.S. investors. The same applies for Australian investors and various other parts of the world because Europe's on a negative base rate environment. What it essentially means is that you can take a 5% spread in Europe and when you hedge it back over to US dollars the pickup you pick you get because of divergent central bank Activity is more than 3%. So 5% spread in Europe becomes 8% yield in the US by the time you've translated it over. You're getting nowhere near 8% for single B risk in the US market right now. So there's not only a spread benefit of investing in Europe, but there's a currency benefit that probably lasts over the medium term. And by medium term, I mean, for at least the next couple of years, because you look how advanced central bank policy is in the US and the, U- and the Europeans haven't even switched off QE yet. They're still going. They haven't introduced their first base rate rise. That's not gonna happen according to Drahi well into next year. Um, so Europe is well behind the central bank curve, but that creates an interesting opportunity set for US investors that are looking for diversification outside of these shores yeah, and that's
0: a that's a little bit of a technical argument. so um what I would suggest to listeners is I know that Martin and his team wrote a white paper on this that's on Baring's website. So if you're interested in in learning more about that dynamic, I would check that out
1: yeah, let's, and take some strong coffee with you because it's a really thrilling read
0: <laughs> So
1: let's talk about
0: um, some other opportunities. You know, global senior secure bonds jump out. Uh, as is as, as pretty interesting to me right now. This is maybe a little bit of a lesser known part of the high yield bond market. Can can you tell us what are global senior secure bonds and, and do you agree that that's a potentially interesting place to look right now?
1: Yeah, it, it's a market that didn't really exist before Lehman's and the way it came about was that um, just after Lehman's banks stopped underwriting loan deals and a lot of loan issuers that used to give away asset security as part of um, issuing into that market came over into the bond market as first-time issuers and they were happy to give asset security away. And today that universe is more than 300 billion. So it's a really investable universe. It's basically bonds with full asset security. That means recoveries in a recession are much, much higher, but they have all the high coupon and liquidity profile that you get from the bond market. And we think that's the sweet spot. It Most of it comes in the single b market and again i as an investor who does both parts of the market bonds and loans all the way through the rating spectrum i'd be single b secured than double b unsecured going into recession every day of the week because having security having asset backing is something that the bond market does not value well the spreads between secured and unsecured are broadly the same at uh, any given time, you look in the marketplace, and actually one should be a lot tighter because having the full asset backing of the company you're lending to is a much better place to be if the economy starts to wobble. Let's talk a little bit about
0: active versus passive. We've seen the rise of ETFs here in the States, not so much in Europe, um, you know, what's, what's your take overall on, on active versus passive in high yield?
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in high yield, it's a much smaller part of the universe. So the most, uh, the ETF market in the U.S. high yield bond market, which is the most penetrated market for ETFs, is about 25 to 3%. So it's a really small part of the market. Most penetrated for high yield, that for is. For high yield, it, yeah. It'll it, be it, much more penetrated uh, in it's, equities. It's, and it's like. more than half of the U.S. Uh, equity market. So it's huge in other asset classes. But active versus passive in credit is a, is a more difficult area. And if you look at the performance of most passive ETFs, it's, uh, it's frankly uh, unexciting that, yes, the fees can be cheaper, although that's a bit of a myth when you look at what retail buyers actually uh, pay. But at the, the performance level seems to be um, fairly low. And look, let's be honest with ourselves that the active versus passive debate only really came about because there were a load of active investors that weren't worth their fees, Um, and, and so we bought it somewhat upon ourselves as active investors, because there was a huge amount of the universe that didn't perform well enough to justify their existence. I'm pretty confident when people look at our longer term track records on a net basis, we always justify why investing is with us is a relevant thing to consider. And every manager has to stand behind his performance and has to sit there and justify, um, why they should be entrusted with investor money. And let's, let's think about
0: just uh, allocating tactically versus strategically to high yield. I think there's a temptation uh, to try to play the cycle with high yield. Do you think that's a, a wise thing to do, or, or do you think about it more strategically?
1: I guess where I'd go with this is, look, if you try and time markets, you almost always get it wrong. Um, and credit markets snap back far, far quicker than equity markets, Uh, I'll use the example of the commodity sell-off that we saw in the US high yield market and spreads actually peaked at 800 basis points um, at the end of February, start of March in 2016, having started to unwind in the summer of, uh, of 2014. So it took a while for them to get to that level. But by December of that year, after the snapback, spreads had returned to exactly where they were in the summer of 2014 when the commodity cycle first hit. So it's very, very difficult with the the quick level in which these credit spreads snap back to time that perfectly. Actually, if you look at the longer term um, annualized returns that you've got from the high yield market um, since Lehman's, it's, it is very competitive to just about every equity market that's out there. And you'll find a much smaller dispersion between the European high yield market and the US high yield market. But it is a compelling, lower correlated, lower volatility allocation that can be made by investors to give some sort of diversity play to their addressable market space.
0: And is there a way to invest or gain exposure not only to U.S. high yield bonds or not only to European high yield bonds, but both of those, U.S. loans, European loans, et cetera? Can you do that all in one place?
1: Yeah, you, and you should do, really. I I, I think, um, look, there is a case for single-jurisdiction high-yield uh, strategies, and certainly um, some investors need that for all sorts of technical reasons, currency reasons. Um, But the more flexibility you can give a manager to go and invest in Europe versus the US, um, bonds versus loans, all of this um, will allow you to get more consistent risk-adjusted returns. You should never confuse pricing in the high-yield market to be logical. It just isn't. To do this effectively, though, you need to have big teams in both markets and um, where people have fallen on their face with global strategies. If you've got some guy in Texas making a decision about investing in a French industrial, the landscape is very different in France, different insolvency law, different rules of the game, different competitive dynamics. So make sure you get involved with uh, companies who have joined up operations on both sides of the Atlantic have local knowledge of the landscape and can give you that bridge, so to make your money move seamlessly between the opportunity sets. Martin, let's turn to uh, Brexit for a minute. What are, what are your thoughts there? Well, Brexit is another one of those events that's bringing deep uncertainty to the market, and frankly. Uh, I have no idea how that translates when we see the reality of the trade agreement that will or won't be reached between the EU and the UK. I think as a credit guy, though, there's a way to, to think about that um, event. In a really bad Brexit um, scenario, I think it's reasonable to think that the UK could go into a mild recession. I say mild because it's two major trading counterparties, the US and Europe, are in pretty good shape right now, and they're almost dragging the UK up by its heels and keeping it in um okay form from a gdp profile perspective but a mild recession yeah you could experience that in the uk i think the other thing you've got to think about is the devaluation of sterling and how that will or won't impact the companies in which you're investing in and frankly with any currency move, there are winners and losers from that type of movement I think the good news as an investor is that I've seen some pretty big recessions over the last decade. I've seen Lehman's, I've seen sovereign debt, and I've got some great data to make a judgment on how these businesses may or may not perform in that spread widening environment. So if you honestly ask me, we've identified a bunch of names that if they widen, we think they're pretty good in most economic environments. We'll be going and buying those names at much wider spreads than we can access today.
0: Martin, we've covered a lot today from uh, loans to bonds to trade wars to Brexit. Thank you so much. It's been a really enlightening discussion. I really appreciate you joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. As I mentioned at the outset, this is a new initiative for us here at Bearings. We would love to hear your feedback. Do you like this format? Is there a way we can improve it? Send us an email at podcast at com. Thanks again for listening.